Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. Is it comfortably that you find that? I'm in the home of Dick Robeson, and Judy Robeson, for that matter. Dick is somebody I've known for, I guess, over 30 years, and Jude too. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about, Dick, is something that to me is a new part of your life, but obviously it's been going on for quite a while, which is your artwork. You just showed me some of it. Tell us what you're up to and what kind of a change in your world that represents. Well, I worked in the Netherlands for a few years. I was a professor at the Institute of Social Studies, and I... <clears throat> when I retired from there mm-hmm. at the end of 2006, I came back here. Which is in Western Australia or in, in Perth, Western Australia. Yeah, yeah. And even though I wanted to keep up my interest in academic work and gradually mm-hmm. got drawn into it further, I thought uh, there's nothing sadder than an old professor who clings to the past <laughs> and just keeps on doing things. Don't look at me and smile when you say <laughs> that, buddy. <laughs> So I thought, here's the opportunity to do something interesting and different. Mm. When I was young, I used to do a bit of drawing. and oh, yeah. mm-hmm. But for 40 years, I hadn't touched anything. Mm. So I thought, let's take it up. And mm. so I did mm. a, a couple of courses and, 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 and worked away at it. And most of my work has been painting or drawing or using pastels to portray a lot of my colleagues and friends. Mm. Mm. So most of it's been, uh, um, you know, uh, a historical sort of thing. And you know, portraiture. It's, portraiture. Yeah, mainly portraiture. Of so, a moment. Mm. So it's embedded in my life and mm. what I'm doing. Mm. And I just find that if I wanted to do a portrait of someone I didn't know, mm. It wouldn't have that immediacy for mm, me. Mm. So I don't pretend that my works are going to be hung in the Tate Modern tomorrow, <laughs> but it's fun to do and it, it's interesting. And it, I can go down the back uh, for several hours and Jude has to come and get me out. Yes, yeah. yes. Hi, Jude. Hi, how are you? <laughs> very well, very well. We're just recording this podcast about... No, 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 no. And, uh, the point is it's a, it's a sort of naturalistic ethos. Here comes Louis the Bluey. The Blue Healer or Australian Cattle Dog, as they're called in the United States, who's just come in, who licked my right hand, is now doing a good job of licking my left hand, and now back to my right hand. Yes. It's a naturalistic ethos that is encapsulated in these podcasts, Jude. Right. So when telephones ring, babies squeal or wives awaken, yeah. you know, <laughs> so to speak. Not that I'm comparing you to all that. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so we're just talking about the artwork that Dick's doing. So it's partly relaxation. But it's also, I'm interested in the way you started that out, Dick. Uh, when you're somebody who's written and taught for your life mm. and you have the opportunity to keep doing that because of your renown, who the fuck is going to tell you to stop? Well, you know what I mean? Isn't yeah. that, that's part of the anxiety, isn't it? I, suppose, I think so. I think so. Retirement is a, is a big challenge for everybody. Right. Because... Right. You know, as I said, it's sad to see old professors hanging around corridors, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and that. And I think that uh, you have to be realistic about the thing that you're not running things anymore. Mm-hmm. And I've been dri- I've been drawn into a few big research projects here, and I've written actually quite a lot. But mm-hmm. I'm getting to the stage where I'm feeling that. Uh, uh, you know, I've had enough of academia and academia's had enough of me. Sure, and sure. 
but but with painting, I mean, I it's not entirely a relaxation because no. I think I'm as obsessive there as I was with my work. So mm -hmm. I at the class I attended, I remember one person's teacher saying, "Well, it's just a hobby," and I said. It's not a hobby for me, you know. I right. I want to learn as much mm. as I can. Mm. I want to mm. improve all the time. I want to be able mm. to relax and and so I'm going at at it in a serious way, even mm. though mm. I really don't take myself too seriously. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, at my age, I'm not going to be an enfant terrible in, <laughs> in the art scene. Uh, yeah, but I still want to learn a lot and experiment a lot and, and do the best that's possible. Now, we were just upstairs in your study looking at your etchings. <laughs> um, and I've also seen them on display in an office. Uh, they're, they're great artworks, really terrific, with a lot of feeling behind them. Uh, also up there, however, was something that is about another work of art by you, which is a famous book you wrote, uh, and its launch in Indonesian, in Indonesia. Oh, yeah. mm. uh, and... I wondered if we could go back, back, back a long time, actually, to 1986 when your first monograph book came out, Indonesia and the Rise of Capital, because that's the book I think yeah, that's right. finally mm. translated in 2012, yes? Or well, it, it has been it translated said? before, but largely by student groups and in bits and pieces during the 1980s and Oh, sort of underground, but there, but this is, and it was, and it was photocopied and yeah. all that. But this is the first uh, formal, you know, organised right publication. Uh, so, a quarter of a century after it comes out yeah. in the rest of the world. Could, so, could you tell us a bit about Indonesia and the rise of capital? I mean, I'm sure yeah. that you've told this story many times, but this is not folks who are listening. For those who are not familiar with Southeast Asia or the academic work about it, this is not just any old academic book. This caused a an international relations storm for a time, didn't it? It did. Um, well, you see, when Suharto came to power in Indonesia, there were a lot of books written about him, looking at him and understanding the whole new regime in different ways. Um, there were the Huntington-type people who said, well, this is modernity and you know, the authoritarian ruler is taking control of the country, bringing it together, enforcing economic growth and so on. This is the Samuel Huntington that people may know of better from the idea of the clash of civilizations That's and right. also uh, who are we? Social order in changing society. Right, which yeah. is the kind of classic text, yeah. which is the justification of raison d'etat, strongman dictatorships, That's right. yeah. uh, keeping the communists at bay. That's basically. right. And others thought of it as a cultural thing. Clifford they Gertz said, well, yeah. in, this is Indonesia, it's a, it's a cult. this is the way they operate and think. Right. And what I did was, and, and, and of course others saw it as the result of exploitation by the West, but I saw it as a new stage in the history of Indonesia, the rise of capital. Mm. And, and here was the fusion of political power and wealth. Mm. And, and this was what I said defined the new order in Indonesia. And, of course, it outraged the left. And, in fact, I got most criticism from the left. Is that so? I got most criticism from the left. One, because they said you hardly mentioned Labor. 
Mm-hmm. And the other because I said, well, you know, they're, they're not mere henchmen of the West. They're doing mm. their own thing as, mm. as well, you know. Mm. And, of course, the right uh, uh, was critical for obvious reasons. But the book, uh, I was lucky enough to be working at Murdoch University, which was a new university, and you were offered the opportunity to write what you wanted and teach what you wanted. A book like this, uh, you know, I don't know if I would have really been able to do it at a at, at one of the older universities. There would have been, uh, you know, lots of tight reins and, tight reins and, and among it, It's worth pointing out to people who don't know this that uh, all this is occurring before the end of the Cold War mm. and in the context of a regime in Indonesia that the United States had backed very thoroughly in its coup against the left mm. 20 years earlier in the mid-60s, which had resulted in half a million communists mm-hmm. being killed yep. and while, and it produced an oligarchy of families mm. that had been brokered partly by support from the United States without a doubt, but also partly through the oil findings that had emerged and yeah. the mm. effects that we all know occur when there is a major resource yeah. finding that transforms well, an economy. Right. It was a perfect storm that everything came together. Uh, The first victory against the communists in the Mm. Cold War Mm. in 1965, uh, which was terribly important for the Americans. Mm. Um, The army seized control, but at the same time, uh, with the uh, neoliberal technocrats who came in, Mm. they... A lot of former state assets and monopolies were handed out to private interests. And so this is where these complex monopolies, business right. monopolies began to be formed. Close links with the military and, and, and with leading politicians. Mm. So mm. Indonesia, in a way, is, is a forerunner of what's happened in a lot of other countries. countries yeah. Iraq today, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you, you can see it's Indonesia minus the, the powerful organised state. Yeah, it's Indonesia with the, with the carpetbaggers minus uh, a, an effective military and an effective bureaucracy, right. and of course many fewer people, <laughs> and many fewer people, and a much more. Uh, a, uh, I mean, Indonesia. Uh, I can remember um, when a colleague of mine, Fadi Hadiz, and I had submitted a, an article on comparing Islam, uh, political Islam, and we compared it. Indonesia with Turkey and Egypt Mm. and one of the reviewers wrote back and said oh look this is not appropriate maybe you could have compared uh, Indonesia with uh, Gabon or somewhere like this and the obvious implication is that Indonesia was a tin pot place and we pointed out that it's it's about the 15th biggest GDP in the world and by far the biggest Islamic state and the biggest Islamic population in the world Mm. and and Mm. I think that uh, Indonesia has been out of the of the mainstream of, yeah. of international yeah. academics. This wasn't understood. But in Australia, when you were talking about opportunities you'd have had elsewhere, there was a block of people associated with Heinz Arndt and others yes. that mm. dominated the study of Indonesia, mm. and they were cold warriors. Mm. And even though they might in some ways be free traders domestically, when it came to Indonesia... Free trade got a free pass um, because it wasn't so important. Mm. What mattered was a block against Sovietism. That's right, it? yes. Yeah.
Yeah. No, well, I think that... Um, people like that wouldn't have liked the work that you did. No, they didn't like the work that, that I did and, and they were highly critical of it. Some people in that group were, were you know, more more tolerant, even though they they regarded it as a bit sort of on the fringe. Mm. Mm. But um, eventually it became, you know, increasingly accepted mm. as mm. as the the way to, to understand uh, the new order. And, Dick, why did it become controversial in Indonesia? Why did it become, as it did, an item in Australian-Indonesian relations? Well, um, what happened was after the book was published, mm. a, the Indonesian government uh, or seemingly put a ban on Australian Air Force planes um, overflying Indonesia and using Indonesian uh, airports. And when the Australian government asked them about this, they said, well, it's in retaliation to this book. I'm not sure that it was. I think that what was happening in the whole lead up to all of this is that the Australian government was so apologetic to Indonesia that uh, on a ministerial visit for other reasons, it was mentioned to the Indonesians that this book was coming out, that the Australian government uh, uh, didn't have anything to do with it, that it, you know, it was unfortunate, and that the Indonesians picked up that this was a sensitive point. So they were prepared to use it you know, in an ongoing dialogue and debate. This is another Australia. case of idiotic Australian foreign policy diplomats who quite were un- dipshits. Created their own crisis. That's right, yes. I mean, (laughs) I I did an article and I likened it to an over-enthusiastic adolescent. You know, the more enthusiastic the adolescent becomes about about the the girl or or the boy that they're chasing, the more they're held in contempt and the more they're manipulated. And, of course, there was a succession of very senior people in the Australian bureaucracy who were Jakarta old hands. I'm thinking of Gordon Jockle and Dick Woolcott. Mm. Um, but there was also that Labour Party politician, Bill, what was his name? Uh, member for St George, who'd been a oh, yeah. foreign affairs yeah. guy. That's right. Yeah, uh, Morrison. Bill Morris. Bill Morrison was mm. his name. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there were specialists there, all of whom were essentially apologists for the regime. And the Australian government had a bipartisan apologism for the regime, both yeah. the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, and the Labour Party, the Trade Union Party, basically would do anything the Indonesians told them to do. Well, that's right. And I think that they... I'm not quite sure what they were worried about. They were worried about upsetting the Indonesians. What they thought the Indonesians would do, I don't know. Amongst this group of so-called Indonesia lobby, you, you, you can divide it into those people who... Uh, on the one hand, were professional diplomats and just wanted to keep the relationship, even though underneath they knew that a lot of the criticism was true. Others really ideologically became involved in this. They took criticism of... The debate over Indonesia became a surrogate for a deeper debate that was going on in Australia that was not anything to do with Indonesia. You know, it was the collision between social democracy and, you know, markets and Mm -hmm. conservatism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this was often played out on the Indonesia stage. 
Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, so that it was, um, so that people would come into this debate not knowing anything about it, but really, you know, on the back of, of a different, uh, a deeper position in the in the political debate in Australia. Another factor in this, of course, which people again may not be that familiar with who are, who are listening to this, is the invasion of East Timor, mm. which occurs in 1975 as Portugal is going through the death throes of its own dictatorship, its empire collapses. And as part of the collapse of the empire, there are unspeakable things done. And one of the worst is Australia and the United States, but really it's the United States, it's Kissinger, giving a green light to the Indonesians. Mm. Australia and the United States just wanted the thing to be settled and go away. Uh, there were some people who thought that if the Portuguese left and no one moved into the vacuum, it could become, you know, a staging point for radicalism or, you know, an unstable element in the future. There was even discussions that, you know, they'd invite Russia in to give them a port in the region and this, this sort of thing. Now, this, I think that basically they just wanted the whole thing to be sealed up and, and go away. They didn't want mm. an irritant in, in the region. And, of course, within the Indonesian military, uh, there were certain officers who were enthusiastic about going in and taking mm. the place over. As usual, there were the... There were the you know, economic rents and benefits that were to be captured there. They were nothing like those that were captured in West Papua, like the, like the you know, the, 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 the large gold and, and uh, uh, aluminum mines, and that, that sort of thing. But uh, um, I should say that right now, today, 2014, we're seeing massive protests, as we have for decades, about West Papua, mm. Irian Jaya. Mm which is the western end of Papua New Guinea, mm. which, again, is claimed by the Indonesians. And uh, Well, Australia is an important place for the claims being made against that by the West Papuans, as it was for the East Timorese making mm. their claims. Well, that's right. And I, I think that everyone accepted that that was the end of Timor. Mm. I didn't. So I couldn't see a way out of it. And it was only in the turmoil after Suharto fell mm. that uh, that the new president was convinced that Timor was more of a nuisance than it was worth, and just let it go, get rid of it, and and that's what that's what they did. Now I've got a question about that, Dick. I was living in New York when all that happened, and Clifford Gertz who, of course, is the author of the Balinese cockfight. A lot of people will know his work. It's all founded mm. in Indonesia. Very much a cultural autonomist slash determinist. Mm. was on the front page of the New York Times, as I recall, saying, this isn't going to happen. It's not in the Indonesian character for there to be a real spillage of authority mm. and the Suharto family is going to get back into power, the whole thing. Mm. Um, he was completely discredited by what occurred. And this is, you're talking about the fall of Suharto. Yeah, the fall of Suharto. Well, I mean, most people couldn't imagine that he was going to go. And there's several ideas about why. Here's a person who had ruled Indonesia for, what, 32 years. Uh, as a political scientist, you know, in that community, 
people were saying in the in the 90s what can we write about it's all so boring there's nothing happening <laughs> um, and of course I, I I think that what eventually happened was obviously the Asian financial crisis. Things got out of control. Uh, the economy went into a tailspin. The the, rup the rupiah uh, went went from about seventeen hundred to the US dollar to to about twelve thousand at one stage. So people were losing their jobs. Sahara couldn't do anything about it. And he, 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 the fragility of his regime was revealed. It makes for a break in the oligarchies, United Front, and it's what people think might happen in the future in Russia for Putin mm. Mm. because of the potential drop in oil prices. Mm. That's right. Now, I think that uh, I think that's, there's always this fatal chasm between the interests of the oligarchy and the interests of of those who control the state apparatus. Yeah, yeah. But of course in Indonesia, the lines between them are much more blurred than they are in Russia. And so the, 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 the big oligarchic families are often spread into business on, on, and, and into the state, except of course for the Chinese families, which are the biggest, uh, the biggest of the oligarchs. Um, they will never have the leverage over state power and government that that they potentially, you know, do in, in other countries. Um, and, of course, the Chinese in 1997 were so shocked that they sent all their money overseas, mm -hmm. including a lot of money lent to them by the central bank, about $14 billion, to really? lent to them to protect their banks against a rush. Well, they just sh shot it offshore. Wow. Mm. Well, let's go back again another 10 years and go back to 86 when your book comes out. What does it mean for you? Did you suffer what Ben Anderson suffered, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, Benedict Anderson, where he was banned from the country for decades, wasn't he? Well, I was never sure whether I was really banned or not. The book uh -huh. was banned. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go back for three or four years. And I got a friend of mine to look in the, uh, you know, the records of... of immigration and that. And, mm. and he said, well, no, you're not on their band, their band list. They did, interestingly, have on their band list a lot of fairly mild and, and uh, orthodox uh, people, you know, such as the, the idiosyncratic nature of this whole mm. thing. Mm -hmm. And when I went back, uh, the book was still banned, but I'd go and see people in... I knew a lot of people in government, in the military, mm. in business, mm. and uh, intellectuals, and that. And even military people would say, "Just a minute," and they'd go and, into an, and they'd come back with the book, and they'd say, "Look at this," you know. Did they ask you to sign it? Some of them did. Some <laughs> of them did. But no, it was it was uh, the book sold like hot cakes, and I've got the the Indonesian. Uh, military and government uh, and the Australian government to think for that because they gave it such air around the place and Singapore airport couldn't keep up with the supply because people going into Indonesia would come and buy half a dozen copies and put them in their bags and take them in. So it's something that doesn't happen to a academics um, mm. very much. I, I should imagine there's probably a lot that sat largely unread on people's bookshelves. <laughs> um, 
even though it did provide very detailed lists of the ownership patterns of the companies and their links with politicians and that, something you couldn't do today. It's just now, it's just so complex and big that you'd need a whole team to be working on it for years to dig this sort of stuff out. But it was a much smaller world then, but the basic principles of the thing were, were there. And the other thing to say is that we mentioned Australian academia on Indonesia and Australian diplomacy on Indonesia being cahoots. So was the bourgeois media. Uh, another, I mean, an old hand of Indonesia who became, was notorious on these things was that guy, was his name Peter Hastings? Oh, yeah. At the yeah. Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah. There was a whole media hegemony that didn't like your message either, wasn't there? That's right. And interestingly, one of, one of the things that upset a lot of these people was the fact that I was so dismissive of culturalist explanations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people positioned themselves as interpreters of Indonesian culture. And they said, oh, you can't understand it unless you do that. I've heard a few things, interestingly, from a conservative think tank in Australia called, I think it's the the Institute for Strategic and Military Studies or something like this. It's in Canberra. I'm not sure whether it's associated with one of the – but I've heard them talking about, oh, if you want to understand Thailand, you've got to understand the notion of karma. It sends a colleague of mine, Kevin Hewison, bananas when he hears that. But what I was saying about Indonesia, well, look, it really doesn't have to do with uh, culture – per se, it, it has to do with power and wealth and struggles uh, to control it between different interests and groups in the country. And in this sense, you know, they're, they're like any other country. It's not some uh, mystical overlay that mm. makes them behave differently. And it was quite interesting to me that conservatives in Australia had made common ground with culturalists who they had previously regarded as sort of airy-fairy. And this also came up in a later debate over Asian values. Who should spring to, the, you know, the defence of Asian values were conservatives in Australia and many business interests. Whereas really what Asian values was, was a fairly extreme form of conservatism. And anti-human rights. And anti-human and rights. If you look back All at, the things they wanted here. If you look yeah. back at the United Nations and the history of human rights in the, in the United Nations, China is the most positive and powerful voice on human rights discourse until Tiananmen Square. Hmm. Suddenly, it buys into Asian values yeah. and describes universalist human rights as a Western plot. Hmm. Bollocks. They invoke the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, on a weekly basis during the Vietnam War, Mm. throughout the civil rights movement in the United States, against Britain's history of slavery. I mean, you name it. These people Mm. loved this idea of universal human rights until it was turned on them. That's right. And until the Uyghurs and and the Tibetans came into into the picture. And and also a lot of national liberation movements in Asia and elsewhere, Mm. trying to get out of the yoke of the Indonesians or the Portuguese or the British, whoever it was, loved the idea of human rights as part Mm. of nation building and an alternative to the domination of these colonial powers. That's right, yeah. But you mentioned being criticised, Dick, in this first major monograph of yours, for excluding labour, 
Mm. Why wasn't Labour in it? Well, I was criticised uh, by uh, people who considered themselves uh, fairly hardline Marxists. And of course, th this view of the world is that, uh, is that it's, it's largely a process of exploitation. And, and therefore, any study of the rise of capital would have to be focused on the ways in which they were able to dominate labour and they are able to increase their rate of exploitation and that. Now, when I was doing this study, and, you know, incidentally, when I started, it was different doing a PhD then. Uh, today, you know, you've got to have reports after three months, reports after six months, and, and uh, committees and your control. In those days, they just threw you in the deep end and said, come back after three years. You were like a monk in a cell, but you weren't governed, were you? No, and I, I didn't know. In fact, it wasn't until halfway through the PhD I really worked out what I was, you know, where I was going and what I was, uh, what, the, what the central point was. Um, and the other thing was that I felt that just looking at the rise of this regime mm. and understanding it in terms of political economy, mm. Mm. in terms of who, who was running it, what their relationship was mm -hmm. and that, that this was a, a monstrous task in itself. Mm. And I would say to people when they criticised me, well, it's not a book about labour. Mm. You know, and sometimes feminists would criticise me and say, where are the women? And I am saying, well, it's, I'm, it's not a book about feminism and and their point was you can't insulate these things you, mm -hmm. so what they're asking me to do essentially was a history of the world yeah. uh, and everything in it and but you're doing the rise of capital I'm doing the rise of capital mm. yeah uh, and essentially how these people created a system of power and concentration of, of, of money and yeah. wealth and how they organized all of that and how the Chinese business groups were brought into the thing. That's what I was focused That's on. That's what you're trying to do. Mm. Now, a year before that, you and Richard Higgett together edited an influential book of essays uh, on the political economy of Southeast Asia. So we're going back now 30 years. You mentioned to me before we started recording that that book is still being talked about today. Can you tell us a bit about that book? Because it does have a labour focus as part of what it does. Well, it does, yes. And interestingly on that point, uh, one of my PhD students, who has since become a professor and come back to Murdoch University, and his, his PhD thesis and his first book was about labour, uh, labour in Indonesia. Um, so who, who was that? Sadie so, Hadiz. So people can follow people, his work. Uh, yes, and he's he's since written books about the political economy of decentralisation. He's now working, uh, and he authored with me the, the book on oligarchy, mm. where we introduced the concept of oligarchy as a means of explaining what was happening after the fall of Suharto. But uh, he wrote he wrote on on labour. Now this book uh, that we did it. What we, what Richard and I wrote was an introductory chapter mm -hmm. saying these are the questions that people are asking, these are the issues, this is what's 
interesting about Southeast Asian politics. And then all the chapters were supposed to deal with different things and relate it back to that central mm. argument. So there was, a, yeah, there was a chapter on labour. There, there were chapters on a whole range of different things, and and we felt that uh, this gave the opportunity for people with different interests to mm. plug it into a central mm. debate. Now, one of the things that the book was trying to do, as I recall, was to deal with the fact that dependency theory had failed to explain mm. places like Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Because dependency theory suggested that as a consequence of the overhang of imperialism and neocolonialism, there would only be expropriation and exploitation by Western mm. companies and there would be no development of indigenous bourgeoisies, but transparently there had been. Yes. Right? And this was in part because of minerals in the case of a place like mm. Indonesia, but in part because of a reserve army of labor, frankly, yeah. mm. in the case obviously most spectacularly since then of China. Mm. So that's where I think labor was, in, was an important factor in, in the book. What's I mean, this is a big question, but what's changed in the last 30 years? Why is that book still talked about? Why is it still useful? And what's really different today? Well, I think it's useful because it provides a window into the, into the time of the sorts of questions we're asking. And, and, and the, the big questions, of course, I, I suppose, was one of, one of the big questions was how, why have uh, authoritarian regimes emerged in all these countries in their various forms? Why hasn't it become a liberal, why haven't they become liberal democracies? The other big question was uh, what is, what's the consequence of economic globalisation? Is it a pathway to out of underdevelopment and poverty or is it going to capture them within its, its tentacles forever? I suppose they were the two biggest questions and there are other subsidiary questions like the question of, of culture. You know, can you dismiss all this as culture? Today, uh, 30 years later, what we're looking at is a region where most of the democratic, most of the authoritarian regimes have gone. Most of the state-centred economic regimes have gone, certainly in, North, in Northeast Asia, not, not counting China. And, and what we have to ask here, what the questions are now is, why has democracy been such a disappointment? Uh, how do we explain why democracy hasn't solved a lot of these problems? Why has the fall of authoritarianism not resulted in this grand new uh, emerging of free markets, human rights, uh, you know, liberal freedoms and, and this sort of thing? Why is it... Why hasn't that happened? And the other thing is, what, why, uh, you know, has globalisation of the economy not resulted in sort of liberal markets, but w why has corruption continued to flourish and even deepened? Mm. Uh, that? So, in a sense, we've got most of what people were worried about earlier on, but we're asking... Why has it all turned out so different? Why does it end in tears? Why does it end in <laughs> tears? tears? Yes. Always. Now, in all of this, Dick, you've been 
quite critical of culturalists, and I was too when I mentioned Goethe's. But does there have to be a standoff between political, economic and culturalist explanations? Can there be a merger of them? Can they talk well, to them? Well, I, actually, I think that there isn't uh, a standoff in reality between them. It's the way that those culturalists then understood culture. And the way I understand culture, you know, that certainly, cult, you know, people view and understand things that are happening in, in different sort of ways. And these, not, these aren't simply a, a national cultures or ethnic cultures. Mm. It can be a business culture. You talk to business people in Perth, and for me, you know, in many cases, I might as well be on the planet Zados <laughs> because it's a different way of understanding how the world works and that. But it's linked. It has interplays with, the, you know, the interests, of the, the more material interests of people and, mm. and the conflicts that they're, mm. that they're finding out. So I'm not saying there's no such thing as or cultures irrelevant or anything, uh, but I but I think that you have to understand culture and political economy as part of one another rather than alternative explanations right. for things. Right. And let's move on to the oligarchy book that you mm. mentioned, which is I guess coming out how much like ten or fifteen years later. Uh, it came out in two thousand and four. Two thousand four. So it was. Getting on for 20 years. Getting later. on for 20 years later. And I must admit I haven't read that one. Oh, it's wonderful. You I, love it. I'm <laughs> sure it's You a, wouldn't be able to go to sleep. As yeah. Tom Cruise memorably said when interviewed about in London about the filming of The War of the Worlds, in response to the question, what do you think of Wells' original book, he said, what? And then they said, H.T. Wells wrote The War of the Worlds. He said, oh, yeah, I've read it. Real page turner. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> the only time we know Tom Cruise, the Scientologist, read the work of a socialist. Yes. But, okay, the real page turner of 2004, what's it called? It's called... Um, oh, <laughs> I put him on the spot. Yes, it's, uh, it's called uh, Changing Power in Indonesia, uh, the Politics of Oligarchy and Good. Markets. Yes, That's cool. People can find that. Yeah. So it's what we really set out to do is to say, see, when... The, uh, Sahado fell, democracy, you know, it really was a democratic movement and mm. the reforms were quite extensive. There, there were genuine free elections. The press was opened up. There were so many newspapers and many of them were, you know, obviously quite ridiculous in that. But nevertheless, there was a hundred flowers were blooming <laughs> and a thousand schools of thought contending. Um, and, and, and you have different people looking for different things like we have um, social movements people and and uh, uh, pluralists of various types saying here it is where you know this has opened the door for uh, reformists to come together mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and that and our argument was well look um, the the particular uh, institutions of the state, as they were, as they operated, may have uh, disintegrated, and the, and some of the leading figures had departed, and you could never go back to that system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the remarkable thing was 
the system of power that had been incubated under Suharto uh, was now so strong that in a way it didn't need that. that. And in fact, Suharto, the man that created it, had become a nuisance to them. And so they were proved, they proved adept, adept mm -hmm. at colonising the new institutions and, and dominating them. And it's, it's not as if a small group of powerful big oligarchs did it, but people flooded, new people flooded mm. into this. Small, mm -hmm. you know, f former student activists got elected to parliament and in a few days were seen driving through the streets of Jakarta in a Mercedes-Benz, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the machine, the logic mm. of the machine mm. Mm. In, in a deterministic way had... Survived, so oligarchy mm. survived. Mm. Not not necessarily the same oligarchs, but this particular system of political and economic relationships had survived, and that's what why we um, how we explained the transition in in Indonesia. I, I suppose there are some similarities to what happened in the Philippines and the fall of Marcos, when it is partly about oligarchs changing their minds. Yeah. I think, um, well, well, the interesting thing about uh, the Philippines is that it was it was very different to Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia was part of that grand sort of those great empires that stretched from Mughal India, and and you know it was more similar to under Sukarno and early Suharto, it was almost like a Soviet mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. whereas the Philippines was always a system run by. Uh, powerful landed interests. You know, Philippines would have been better situated off the coast of Latin America or Mexico. It would have saved us a lot of problem in trying to explain why it was so different <laughs> so to other Southeast Asian countries. Well, it's interesting in terms of the Spanish and the United States yeah. having been colonizers. That's right, yes. Uh, so it's an anomaly, really. Yeah, it's, it's a more clientelist in the, system. In the region. But it is about oligarchs changing their minds. It is, it is. That, That's right. that it does have in common with the Indonesians to a certain extent. Well, yeah, and Marcos, when he came to power, was a bit like, a little bit like the early Suharto mm. uh, he, he tried to build a powerful central state and take back control. He took on some of the oligarchs. He did actually. take on some yeah, of the oligarchs, yeah. 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 And uh, he did have some success for a while. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he was overwhelmed by the, the, the embedded power of, the, of this system of, uh, yeah. of uh, oligarchs. And, yeah, uh, mm. interesting. So, Dick, one of the other things you did during all this time was to establish the Asian Research Centre at mm. Murdoch University mm. in Perth and also to go off to, was it Leiden in the Netherlands? I went, I went to The Hague, to, to, the uh, Hague. To, to the Institute for Social Studies in The Hague, right. which is now part of Erasmus University. Okay. So what was it like, A, having this big Asia Research Centre mm. that you ran and, B, then moving off to the Netherlands, which, of course, was the colonising power of Indonesia, mm. or had been? Well, the Asia Research Centre was quite an interesting development. The Australian Research Council advertised for uh, what they call special research centres. And that, what they were trying to do was to build large concentrations of excellence in research. And so together with uh, uh, a few colleagues, 
uh, we developed um, a, an application and it, it, it was very politically complex. We had a lot of supporters and a lot of opponents and sometimes from areas where you wouldn't suspect them. And it, to cut a long story short, we got this and it was for nine years and it involved about $6 million or so, which was unheard of for a social science research centre at the time. And we, you know, began to work on different projects. It gave us the ability to bring to the centre outstanding people from the region and we built up lots of contacts and networks and research collaborative projects and things that are still going today because the centre is still alive and well and strong uh, and it's, it, it's uh, 20, 24 or 5 years after it, it was set up. The, the funding for the centre ended in 2009 and as, it, as the funding ended I came under a lot of pressure from uh, the then Vice-Chancellor and various business people that he brought into the university to turn it into a consultancy for private business. I wasn't in the least bit interested in that and th there are no rewards for academics, certainly at the time, in doing this sort of thing because, as you know, promotion and reputation is based on, on your ability to produce excellent research and that's of a high profile. So I decided that uh, uh, once the money ended, life would be pretty miserable there. Mm -hmm. So I went to England for best part of a year on a Leverhulme fellowship at Warwick and a Leverhulme Trust Award, I think it was called. And while I was over there, I was given this advertisement for the job at the Institute of Social Studies. And I, I'd known about this institute and it used to produce really uh, good work right through the 80s and that. So I applied for the job and uh, and I was surprised that I was offered it because I, was, I wasn't I was a spring chicken at the time. Mm -hmm. But I got this job and convinced my wife that, we should go to the Netherlands for a few years. We'd always wanted to live in Europe. So we went there for a few years and uh, overall we enjoyed ourselves immensely. And at the end of 2006, I decided to retire. I still had a few years, you know, to go but and came back to Australia. And uh, here I am and I've sort of, I've developed close relationships with all my old colleagues at, uh, at the centre mm -hmm. and I think, Three of them are professors there at the moment. It sounds very... Uh, they, they were for, former PhD students yes. of mine. And incestuous. We're going out to dinner with we're going some out of these to dinner with some of these people tonight. tonight yeah, which is really fun. Mm. Well, Dick, I I want to thank you for giving so much of your time. I'd love to come back and talk some more with you, uh, maybe next year or whenever about your artwork but also fill in some of the gaps in the mm. narrative because there are lots of other things you've written about and worked on and corruption is a big yeah. theme that we've barely touched on but underpins much of your mm. work. Not yeah. that you're corrupt, although of course you're renowned <laughs> for that thing, but no, but really. Um, it inevitably applies <coughs> when you have oligarchies yeah. and powerful state apparatus. Mm. So let's... If you, if you will consent, let's do mm. another one. Sure. Uh, and I've that. actually written some stuff about Iraq along the themes of 
saying, well, you know, uh, we can't, we've really got to get a political settlement there, but yeah. the West has, has, has destroyed its own nest in that, in that way. And one of, the, one of the reasons is the sort of regime they created in Iraq over the past, over 10 years of occupation. And uh, so that there's been nothing said about this, really, right, right. and that's the focus. So I'm bringing my general interests in yeah. how regimes are created. I think it applies to a lot of different lot countries. Of other countries. Yeah. Well, let's let's make that one of the themes yeah. that we discuss. All right. Mm. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby.